Let me invite you this morning to open up your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10. It's going to be our passage of Scripture that we consider this morning. Today we are drawing our short series entitled The Mission of the Church to a Close. The intent of this series um, was to lay before our church the biblical vision and mission of of who we are to be as a local church. What is a local church to be doing? How are we to be on, on mission? So three weeks ago, we examined Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. Uh, that passage is known as the Great Commission. And it is indeed great because we see our, a great assertion of Jesus' authority for the church in that text. We see a great assignment that Jesus gives to the church in that text And then we see a great assurance that Jesus will be with the church in that text. And from that assignment that Jesus gives us, we draw our mission statement, which is simply a a restating of what Jesus said. And, And I've worded it this way. We exist to make, mature, and mobilize disciples of Jesus Christ through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, for the glory of Jesus Christ. So we, we exist to make, mature, and mobilize disciples of Jesus Christ through the gospel of Jesus Christ for the glory of Jesus Christ. And I created a model to help us um, visualize that mission with the uh, three M's on it. Make, mature, and mobilize disciples. And in the middle of that model is the word disciples because that's the main verb of that Matthew twenty-eight eighteen through 20 passage. That's the main thing we are to be doing. All the other verbs are participles. That help us understand how we go about doing it. But the main verb is to make disciples. And so that's in the middle. And then around the edge, there's the words make, mature, and mobilize. Make is simply a representation of the word, of the participle in that passage, baptizing them. You know, when we baptize people, it's a public response to the gospel. It is the entry point into discipleship. Not that baptism itself does anything magical, but it is a, a demonstration, a, a, a first step of obedience to show what it is that we actually believe and what it is that has actually happened to us. Therefore, we must know the gospel in order to reach people with the gospel. We must get the message right. And to that end, we looked at Luke chapter 24 verses 44 through 49, which is another Great Commission passage. But we saw in that text three of our six core values of who we need to be as a church. And the first three were simply this. We must value the sufficiency of Scripture. We must value the centrality of the gospel. And we must value the priority of preaching. And then the next M is the word mature. And that's represented by the participle teaching them in that text in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Therefore, we must grow in the gospel. In order to grow people with the gospel, we must get the message in. Get it in to each and every one of our hearts and our minds. To look at that, to consider that, we looked at John 17, verses 17 through 19. And we saw in that text Jesus' high priestly prayer. And we saw that the instrumentality of our spiritual growth is God's transformative truth, which is his word. And then we saw in verse 18 of that passage, the purpose of our spiritual growth is that we might be on mission to the world. And then finally, in verse 19, we saw the grounds of our spiritual growth is simply uh, the particular and perfect work that Christ accomplished on the cross. In last week's message, I I touched on number four and number five in our core values. Uh, Number four simply being the necessity of discipleship. And number five being the solemnity of family. Family is certainly God's, one of God's main means uh, for, for spreading the gospel to the next generations. It is his primary means. 
And that brings us to today. The final participle that makes up Matthew 28, 18 through 90 is the one that appears first in that text, which is the word go. And that word means that we must mobilize people with the gospel message. We must make new disciples. It is represented in our model there by this, by this circle in, in these little arrows there. It shows there's this, this circular, it, it, it's a continual process. We make mature, we mobilize in order to make mature and mobilize and so on and so on. So we must know the gospel, we must grow in the gospel, but we must also go with the gospel. So we must get the message out. And in that last, in today's text, what we see is that final core value, which is simply the gravity of missions. We want to be a church that takes missions seriously. This morning, though, I want us to take us to a passage as we consider the M, mobilize, which is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. So please stand, if you would, as we get ready to read this passage of Scripture. We stand in the honor of the reading of God's precious and infallible word. This is the Apostle Peter speaking. 1 Peter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. We simply ask that you would grant me... um, a mouth to speak your word accurately. Grant all of us ears to hear it rightly. Lord, we pray for clarity. We pray for understanding. And we pray, Lord, that we, each and every one of us in here would come under submission to your word. Help us, God. We don't, in our flesh, we don't naturally do that. So, God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would move in this place, making our hearts ready to be willing and submissive to your word. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Now, how many of you guys in here like to draw? Kids, adults, anybody likes to draw? Good. There's lots of people like How many of you have ever drawn a portrait of some person? A portrait. Okay. All right. We've got lots of people out here that have drawn some portraits. Okay. Um, I've got a couple of portraits up here. And my kids aren't too happy about it, but I'm going to show them to you. Um, I did get permission. I got two portraits of it. Tell me who these portraits are of, okay? Here's the first one. Who's that a portrait of? It, it is Noah. All right. <laughs> All right. Noah's, it's a self-portrait that Noah did. And he said, you can't show them. That doesn't look like me. So, you know, you were about to justify everything he just said. Now, this, he, he drew this years ago. And I know he's a little embarrassed, but this is, is a, a portrait of Noah. Who's this one a portrait of? 
Olivia, there you go. Olivia's must be more accurate because the more of y'all responded to that one. All right. But both of them were like mortified that I, I had to convince them and lobby that I could actually do this this morning and use these portraits. Now, I simply do that to, to bring an illustration this morning. As we think about this passage here this morning, what we have in this passage from the Apostle Peter is a portrait of the church. Now, just as my kids were upset that, oh, this portrait doesn't look like me. Okay, when we draw portraits, sometimes we don't draw them accurately. We, we get something off. I'm not good at drawing portraits. I'm better at, at cartoons. I can draw a cartoon of somebody, but certainly it's probably not going to be accurate. Okay, it actually may look funny, which is the intent of a cartoon. But a portrait, which is supposed to be serious, should look like the person. You should be able to recognize who the person is. And, and of course, different people are talented at that. Some people aren't, some people are. But those who are really talented at painting portraits, and you look back at some of the great artists in history and look at some of the portraits they drew, you're just amazed at the detail. And, and so a portrait is done, a good portrait is done by someone with a lot of skill who puts just the right strokes to help us see what the person actually looks like. And so in this text today, I'm approaching it kind of like the Apostle Peter is a master artist here. And every word of this text is just another stroke in this picture to help us see, number one, who the church is, and number two, what the church should be doing in light of who we are. So as we approach this text this morning, this is a beautiful passage of Scripture painted by a beautiful artist who is the Apostle Peter And it gives us a stirring image of of who the church is and what the church should be doing. Now, the context here of the epistle that's called 1 Peter, Peter's first epistle, is that he wrote this when he was in Rome, probably around the year, between the years 60 and 68 AD. This letter was written to believers who were scattered across the Roman Empire, most of whom were suffering persecution and trials due to their faith. And in this epistle, Peter is trying to reassure the church of who they are in Christ, and what it is that they've been called to do. So in this text, we see something about Harbins. Because 1 Peter wasn't written only to the dispersed Christians of the first century. It was written to us as well. The portrait of the church is meant to establish, encourage, and equip, and even empower us, just as it was for them. So the first thing this morning, I'll get right into our points. The first thing... We see in the Apostle Peter's portrait of the church is we see this. That we are, number one, a temple being constructed for the worship of God. We are a temple being constructed for the worship of God. Verse 4 says, And you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, the very beginning of this text here says, as you come, this is a worship phrase. This is a phrase that that may not seem significant to us at first glance, but this phrase is a technical term for coming to worship in the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament that was used during Jesus' day, oftentimes quoted in the New Testament. Um, This phrase, the phrase in the Old Testament that we normally read in our Bibles that says drawing near to God, 
This very word here, this Greek word here, as you come, was what was used to reference that. It was, it's a worship term. The Old Testament saints drew near to God. They came to worship God. They drew near by coming to a physical location, a tabernacle or a temple. So here, this familiar Old Testament phrase is being used by Peter of New Testament saints drawing near to God for worship. But now, we're not drawing near by coming to a physical tabernacle or a physical temple, but by coming to Christ. Christ Jesus, who according to Peter here, is a living stone. Now what Peter is doing here is drawing heavily on Old Testament language and imagery to show us that Christ is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament shadows. And that in him alone do we find the center point of true, genuine worship. Jesus is a living stone. Unlike the dead stones that made up the physical place where people used to draw near to God, now in the new covenant era, Christ is the center point of our worship. He has come to tabernacle with us, according to the Apostle John. And therefore, he is the new temple also, according to what Jesus says in John chapter 2. He is the place where true worship occurs in spirit and in truth. In John chapter 2, Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And as we know, by looking later at verse 21, he goes on to tell his disciples that he was speaking about the temple of his body. The dead stones have been torn down and rebuilt over centuries. And soon they would be forever torn down in A.D. 70. Yet Christ, the living stone, will remain forever. And those who come, who draw near to worship Yahweh, now come to the Son, the one who is our mediator between God and man. So we come, and notice here the tense, we come, present tense, because he is a living stone. His body, the new, true, ultimate temple, was indeed torn down, but sin could not claim him, and therefore the grave could not hold him. He is alive, he is a living stone stone. But sadly, he was rejected by men, by his own people, the people who prefer dead stones over living stones. Oh, friends, don't let us become people who prefer dead stones over living stone, the living stone. Now, Peter expands upon this truth in verses 6 through 8, and so I want to focus on those real quickly before we come back up to verses 4 and 5. In verses 6 and 8, he will quote three Old Testament passages to show us that Jesus is the new temple who would be rejected by his people. First, Peter quotes Isaiah 28, verse 16. In the context here in this text in the Old Testament, in the Isaiah 28, 16 passage, is that Isaiah was prophesying to the southern kingdom, to the people of Judah. And here he is chastising them for their false confidence. Um, you see, they had a false confidence that so long as they had the temple... They would never be overthrown. They have the temple. We have the temple. And so long as we've got that, so long as we're living in the shadow of the temple, we'll be safe. And and Isaiah wants to show them that they're wrong. And in that context, he says this, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. What Isaiah is doing in this passage is urging them to stop putting faith in physical stones. In a physical temple. And instead look in faith to the cornerstone on which the new temple would be built. 
And this cornerstone is on a slab of physical marble, but it's a person. Look at what it goes on to say. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Isaiah leaves us no doubt that this cornerstone is a person. Jesus is the chosen and precious stone. A builder would take much care in those days to choose the right stone to be the cornerstone. And when he found that perfect stone, it was indeed precious. It was important. It was the most important and most precious stone in the entire structure. It had to be strong. It had to be straight. For it would determine the proportions and the sturdiness of the rest of the entire structure. So Peter is arguing from the Old Testament that Jesus is the cornerstone for a new and better structure, a spiritual structure. And blessed are those who believe. 1 Peter 2, verse 7. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now this is a quote from Psalm 118, verse 22. A passage Jesus himself uses several times in reference to his rejection by the Jewish people. He, he references it in, in Matthew 21, verse 42, in Mark 12, verse 10, and in Luke 20, verse 17. And Peter quoted these words, as we saw earlier and we read earlier in the service, in Acts chapter 4, verses 11 through 12. But many, most, who were hearing this message would not believe. So that's why Peter says in verse 8 that Jesus became to them a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. But for those, both Jew and Gentile, who, who have drawn near, who have put faith in Christ, who have believed, Peter has the following things to say. So let's jump back up to verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now in these words, we begin to see the first strokes of Peter's artistry here as he paints the picture of who the church is. And these are amazing strokes. And the first one should blow us away. It's one thing to call Jesus a living stone, but Peter here says that we are like living stones. How so? How are we? How are we living stones? Well, you see here, this is, reference, is in reference to our union with Christ. We are living stones because and only because we are united to the living stone. So not only is Christ the temple of God, Scripture teaches us that we, we are being built into the temple of God. We, according to Peter, are being built up as a spiritual house. So that's the next stroke. A spiritual house. And house here refers to the house of God, which was oftentimes used to refer to the temple in the Old Testament. We are built into a spiritual house. Hebrews 3, 6 says, We are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. We individually are each temples because of the indwelling Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 refers to us individually when it says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? So we individually are called temples. But not only individually, corporately, the body of Christ is called God's temple. In that same book in 1 Corinthians, this time in chapter 3, verse 16, it says this, Do you not know that you are God's temple 
and that the God's Spirit dwells in you. It's referring to the body, to all of us. And then 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16 says, We are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. So we, the church, are the temple of God. The church is. We corporately, with the Spirit of God and the Word of God dwelling in us richly, we have been carefully chosen and intricately interconnected with the living stone, the cornerstone. We are united to him, resting on him. And that's the portrait Peter is painting here of who we are. And we must also see that we are being built up. Present tense, continual active voice here in this verb. God is in the process of making us into the pure church that he wants us to be. We are progressively becoming who we are. Both individually, progressively being sanctified, but corporately, we are progressively being sanctified as a church. Therefore, both individuals and churches should be growing in maturity and purity. I think a lot of times we know that as individuals, but do you realize churches should be growing in maturity as well? And so if you, if you begin to, to worry about, well, I'm seeing changes happening, that's actually okay. You want your church to change the longer it's, it's in the right kind of way. Sometimes pastors get very, very ego-driven and feel like, well, we can't change that or we can't change this because, well, it needs to be my vision or whatever else. That's absolute foolishness. We should be changing as a church, changing into Christ-likeness. We want to worship better. We want to preach better. We want to disciple better. We want to grow and change as a church because we are being built, being built into this house of God. But Peter's portrait doesn't stop at the building. He, he mixes his metaphors here, and that's okay. He's an apostle. He can do that. He mixes his metaphors, and, but he's still keeping on the same theme of the, of the temple here. And he calls us a holy priesthood. We, believers, we are a priesthood, meaning we have access to God. Just as the Old Testament priests had. Ours, of course, is access purchased by better blood than that of what the Old Testament priest used to gain their access to God. It's been purchased with pure blood. It's been purchased by our ultimate high priest, who is Jesus Christ. And more than that, being called a holy priesthood means that we are people set apart holy for a purpose. And that purpose is to offer up worship to our God. We see that in verse 4, which contains the purpose of us being living stones. The purpose of us being built into a spiritual house. The purpose of us being a holy priesthood. And that purpose is, verse 4, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's our purpose. Now, you may be wondering this morning, what does this have to do with mobilizing disciples. What does this have to do with missions, Steve? Everything. I'll tell you why. If we don't get worship right, we don't get missions right. It's really that simple. As we make disciples, we are making worshipers. As we mature disciples, we are maturing worshipers. And as we mobilize disciples, we are mobilizing worshipers To reach new worshipers. 
You see, missions is all about worship. John Piper, in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, the very first words of this book are foundational words. Actually, I should say they're foundation-shaking words. These are the type of words that cause sort of a, a type of revolution in your mind. And I've heard one, more than one missionary share with me the impact that these words had on them. This is what the very first words of Let the Nations Be Glad says. Quote, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions. Because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. End quote. Those are important words. Those are important words. Missions exist because there are billions of God's image bearers not worshiping the one true God. So if we are going to make worshipers, we better be worshipers. Worshipers who in spirit and in truth are offering up not physical sacrifices of bulls and goats, but as Peter says here, spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, the immediate question that comes into our mind, well, what what are these spiritual sacrifices? What is a spiritual sacrifice? And well, to answer that, we need to go to the New Testament. We need to ask, where else is this phrase used? And I see four other places that this word spiritual sacrifices is either used exactly like that or, or alluded to. And there may be more than this, but here's four this morning. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy, I mean, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So spiritual sacrifice is pure worship is to offer up our whole being, all that we are to God, to be used by him however he so wishes. There's nothing we should cling to. It's all his, every bit of who we are. Hebrews 13 verse 15 says this, through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So in this Hebrews chapter 15 passage, we see two things in this text. Spiritual sacrifices are praise, exulting in who God is. Because we've been redeemed, the fruit of our lips, we have lips that acknowledge the name of Jesus. And therefore, that should be happening, not just here, but everywhere. We should have lips that are just praising God. That's worship. But more than that, the text goes on to say that our sacrifices are to do good deeds and share our resources. To do good to others and to, to let go of the stuff we have. For the sake of God. And I would say for the sake of missions. Let me take you to another text. Philippians 4.18. Paul speaking here to the Philippian church says this. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied. Having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. 
a fragrant offering. Listen to this. A sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Friends, spiritual sacrifices is letting go of material things, temporal things, to the glory of God and the good of others. Specifically, in the church context, we need people offering these type of spiritual sacrifices in order to fund missions, to fund ministry. We can't be on mission. We can't do the things we want to do as a church if we do not have people offering up spiritual sacrifices like the ones Paul mentions here, period. So you see, missions and and worship do intersect in even another way. If you're not giving sacrificially, if you're not contributing to the work of the church and to the needs of the saints, then friends, you are not worshiping God to the degree that he wants you to worship him, period. You are not. You are defrauding him of what he is worthy of, namely your worship, and you are defrauding yourself of the full worship of him, the joy of of exulting in him. I often hear people say, well, when we have a little bit more, we'll, we'll give more. Or when this challenge in our life passes, we'll give more. Friends, that's usually a lie. Satan will always put something in your path to make you think, now's not the time to let go of these stuff that I have so that I might worship God more fully. Friends, you know we are here as a church. We have this building because others worshipped God rightly with their lives and with their wallets. You see, the church in America isn't failing to accomplish the mission because of a lack of money. The church in America is failing to accomplish the mission because we have too much money. And we love it. This church will not fund missions not because we don't have enough money here. It's because we have too much. There's too much money represented by the people in these seats, myself included. And when we have much money, we are tempted and drawn to keep that money. And God says worship is to let go of it, all of it if he so declares, all of it if he so leads. We are here because another church for three years started off giving us $3,000 a month and then $1,500 a month and then weaned it down to $1,000 a month, but sacrificially served us. They worshiped God and we are reaping the fruit of that. We are in a, in a building. We are in, a, in, a, in something to keep rain off our head when we worship because someone decided to give sacrificially to God and to let go of his stuff. The truth is that about 20% of the people in this room sustain the ministry needs of this church. I do not look at the giving. I do not know who gives what. And I will never look at the giving. I will never know who gives what. But I am praying that our giving in this church change. We Harbins must see that to worship God rightly, we must give in order to fund the task of making, 
maturing and mobilizing disciples. This mission means nothing if we sit in our wallets and fail to worship God rightly. It means nothing. Everything I've laid out and everything I will lay out today means nothing. And we will not be able to go where God wants us to go if we continue to worship him poorly. Worship intersects missions in a lot of different ways. So friends, this morning, I want to take us to one more passage that speaks of these spiritual sacrifices. Romans 15, verse 16. This is Paul speaking of being a a minister of the gospel. And he says that he is a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the, and this is what it says here in the text, the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So friends, another part of our priestly work of our spiritual sacrifices involves spreading the gospel message. We do not worship God rightly if we're not spreading the gospel. We do not do our priestly work if we are not taking the word out of these doors and into our communities and our neighborhoods. So do you see, true worship is intimately tied to missions. We cannot do and fund missions if we do not worship rightly. And conversely, we cannot worship rightly if we are not doing and funding missions. And so as Peter puts more strokes on this portrait, our mission comes into more focus here. And so my second point here this morning is that we see that we are a people who have been chosen to be witnesses of God's glory. Not only are we a a temple being constructed for, for proper worship of God, we are a people who have been chosen to be witnesses of God's glory. Peter continues here to use language from the Old Testament. And this time moving from language previously reserved for the temple and temple worship to language previously reserved for Israel as a nation. So let me just read these last two verses, verse 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim, here's the mission, you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So first he says in verse 9 that we are a chosen race. Let us consider this word chosen here. God has always been a choosing God. He chose Abraham. He chose Israel. He chose all who would be saved through Jesus Christ. He chooses because he is a sovereign and free God. Now, Peter emphasizes the sovereignty of God strongly in this epistle. And maybe one of the strongest books in all the Bible for understanding the sovereignty of God. But he does so without in any way diminishing the responsibility of man. Look back. Back up just a little bit to verse 8, the last half of verse 8. Says they stumble because they disobey the word, comma, as they were destined to do. You see, in verse eight, or that second half of verse eight, Peter does what we must be able to do. We must hold both truths as compatible man's responsibility and God's absolute sovereignty. We damage our gospel witness if we fail to recognize both truths. If we focus solely on the responsibility of man in missions, We simply become pragmatists, do whatever we can. 
But if we focus exclusively on the sovereignty of God in missions, we will fizzle into inactive fatalism. Either way, missions dies. Pragmatism and fatalism, either way, missions dies. Now back to verse 9. Like I said, there's echoes again here of these Old Testament words that, that Peter is saying specifically. If you want to go look them up, Exodus 19, Deuteronomy 7, and Isaiah 61 and 66. He says, first we are a chosen race. Race, this word race here also means kindred or lineage or offspring. This takes us back to Abraham. This word should drive us back to the Abrahamic covenant. And we see the twofold nature of the Abrahamic covenant. There is a physical um, lineage, kindred, and offspring, which is ethnic Israel. But also we have in the Abrahamic covenant the promise of a spiritual lineage, kindred, and offspring. Therefore, Romans 4.16 teaches that the church consists of all those who, quote, share the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So the church is indeed the lineage, the kindred, and the offspring of Abraham. Galatians 3.26 teaches it. It says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ and put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, listen to this, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So, we are one race in Christ, one spiritual race made up of many physical races. We are one spiritual race made up of many physical races. Now there's striking parallels here in this first Peter passage to Revelation 5 verses 9 through 10. Where we read this beautiful song being sung to Jesus by, by the saints. It says, by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests. To our God, and they shall reign on the earth. What a portrait Peter is painting for us here. So Peter goes on to restate our priesthood, but this time he calls us a royal priesthood. Not only are we a holy priesthood, set apart and sanctified in order to bring pure and true worship to God, we are also, by virtue of our union with King Jesus, we are royalty. We are co-heirs. We are children of God. It's a big deal to find out you're related to royalty. I don't know if you remember the story. Back in 2006, ABC News ran the story. There was a young lady named Sarah Colbertson. She was 22 years old, but she had been adopted just two days after her first birthday. And um, when she got older, she decided to try to tra track down her where she was adopted from, her lineage. And she found out through the help of a private investigator that her birth father, um, well, birth mother, her biological father, uh, lives in Africa. But not only that, he was royalty. Okay, it sounds like a movie plot, I know. But he was. He was royalty. He was part of a tribe called the Membe tribe in Sierra Leone. She was a princess. She had no idea. And so it was a big deal. It changed her whole life. And she actually went and actually went to the tribe and they treated her like royalty. There was this parade of people even bowing down to her and all this other stuff. It's crazy. When we understand who we are, it changes things. And we are a royal priesthood. And we read here also that we are a holy nation. Holy, again, being sanctified and set apart for a purpose. But we are a nation. The word here is different than the word race used earlier in the text. This word is ethnos. It refers to ethnicities. It's the same word used in Matthew chapter 28, 18 through 20. It refers to people groups. Not necessarily um, 
um, political nation states, but people groups, ethnicities. So in Christ, we are one people group. We are one nation made up of many nations. So as we pray for the people groups each Sunday, we are praying that they be brought into the one people group of God. We want them to be one with us and one with Christ. So Peter has even more strokes here in his portrait. Let's look again at verse 9. It says that we are a people for his own possession. Oh, the portrait just gets more beautiful and more beautiful. Each stroke stirring up more amazement in our hearts. The image here is that we are God's treasure. By virtue of our union with Christ, who is chosen and precious, according to this text, we ourselves now, in God's eyes, are chosen and precious. We are a people for his own possession. Now, what does that stir up in your heart when you consider these truths? Well, Peter says there's a purpose behind these truths, and we find that in the second half of verse 9. Here's the purpose. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That we may proclaim his excellencies. We are chosen and precious. We are a race of races. We are a nation of nations. We are holy and royal priests. Not only so that we might worship and exult in his glory, but also so that we might witness to and advertise his glory. That's what proclaim means here. It means to publish or to advertise. We are to be living advertisements for God's glory. We are to advertise his excellencies. The word here, excellencies, refers both to God's moral quality and to his deeds. So we are to advertise who he is and what he has done. And what is it that he has done for us? Well, he, according to the Apostle Peter here, called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Darkness means lostness. All men are born into darkness. They see, but they do not see. So darkness here is a metaphor for complete depravity. It does not say we are in a dark place. It says that we were in darkness. We were effectually and irresistibly called out of that darkness into his marvelous light. The light will be marvelous in our eyes only to the degree that we understand our darkness. I know I've told the story before, but I grew up in cave country when I was a little kid. And my cousin and I once went down in a cave when we weren't supposed to. And we were trying to catch up with a cave tour. And the cave tour guy didn't know we were back there. And he turned off all the lights because they were going to the next section of the cave where they were going to turn on new lights. But he turned off the lights that were behind him. And my cousin and I happened to be in that section. I don't know if you've ever been in a cave when all the lights were turned off, but it's complete darkness. It's what they call total darkness. You can't see a thing. And we spent the next hour trying to claw our way out of that cave. Okay, there are dangers all around, little cliff we could have fallen off, all kinds of things. Stalagmites, stalactites that you're not supposed to touch because it's supposed to stunt their growth for 100 years or whatever. We did it anyway. We're climbing up these things. And when we finally saw light, oh, it was marvelous light. Oh, we were happy. And so you will only appreciate the marvelous light to the degree that you understand your dark depravity. Darkness is the condition of the world, friends. Do you feel? Do you feel for the world? Have you forgotten or never even understood the darkness that you were once in? Do you not see that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God? If we understand the darkness, if we love the light, then we should be on mission. In Acts chapter 28, I'm sorry, chapter 26. Verse 18, we read that Paul was sent to the Gentiles, and this is his words, quote, 
to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. This is Jesus speaking to Paul. And that's our commission too, friends. So what does that mean for us here at Harbin's? And let me sort of wrap up the sermon by talking about what this means for us here at Harbin's. How do we proclaim the excellencies of God? Well, I think it's helpful to, to, to think about our mission in, in Acts 1-8 terms, where we divide it up into to four focuses, local, regional, national, and global. But before I break down those things and share what's on my heart in these areas, let me say that I really desire to see organic ministries emerge in this church. What you're passionate about, if you have a connection with some sort of missionary work or something you're doing in the community, I want those things to emerge as possibilities of the way our church can get involved. I also want to have a local church focus. If we think about we think about missions and reaching out to places that are outside of this local community. We want to be connected with local churches because the church is the means God uses to make mature and mobilize disciples. So locally, I want our church to focus, first of all, on doing this well. Preach the gospel every Sunday, period. Invite the lost. But I also want to think about evangelism in our local community. Well, I want you to think about where you are at individually. I mean, I'd like for our church to do a better job of equipping, encouraging, and empowering people to do evangelism. Ephesians 4.11 says he gave apostles, the prophets, and the evangelists, the shepherds and the teachers, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. That means that there should be evangelism teaching going on in our church. And Peter has done that before for our church body and we'd like for us to be doing that again and doing it more. We want to look for organic, as I just said, organic opportunities. And each week in the bulletin, there's an organic opportunity. We know that Peter is involved in gospel outreach in Athens. But I want to look for other ways as well. I want to have a full-orbed approach to, to gospel ministry here in our community. You may be familiar with something called Good News Club, something like that. I want to do an after-school program at Harbin's. And I can't do this on my own. I'm waiting for people. I want to equip people for the work of the ministry. Some sort of after-school program at Harvest. You may not know this, but the Supreme Court has ruled that the schools have to allow churches to come in and use their, their facility for after-school programs so long as it's not mandated that the students go there. But we can share the gospel all we want actually in the school. I want us to get involved in that, either at Harbin's or Alcovey. I want us to be more focused on welcoming people into our community. We get every month, we get a list of new people that have moved into the community from our association. But we just never have used it. What an opportunity to just go straight to the door. Welcome them, invite them to the church, but share the gospel with them as well. I'm really praying about starting a Christianity Explored community group. You may not be familiar with that, and I can explain that more later. But basically, it's a community group driven towards trying to reach people in your neighborhood. And I'd like to get one started up here. I'd like to consider how our church can leverage the fact that we have many, many people moving into Gwinnett County and right here that actually don't speak English. And consider starting an ESL program where we teach them English and we use the gospel to do it. So they learn English, and by the time they learn sufficiently to understand it, they've heard the gospel. I want to pray about how we can do a better job of penetrating some of our college campuses, including Georgia Gwinnett College, down the road here. I want us to use... Think about how anything we do in this community, whether it be any sort of outreach or community service or our benevolence ministry, 
It needs to be connected to a gospel witness. Sometimes we, we've given out a lot of benevolence money at this church over the last few years. But sometimes I wonder how well we're doing in actually sharing the gospel with those same people. And I know sometimes it's been done well, but other times perhaps not. I want to continue to do what we've done the last two years and do the Memorial Day Parade and use that as a, as a tool for getting the gospel into the community. And as I shared last week, I want to do a counseling ministry at this church. And I believe counseling can become a vital way of evangelizing the community. And what I mean by that is simply this. If we start a biblical counseling ministry at this church, we will, first of all, focus on counseling one another within the body. We also want to make aware, either through the, through the um, counselors at the schools, that we have counseling in our church, and it's free to the community. But you know what you do when someone comes in to be counseled? The first thing you do with them is you share the gospel with them. Because ultimately, this word will accomplish nothing for the unbeliever. It's just foolishness to them. So the first thing you got to do when you're counseling someone for the community is share the gospel with them. And help them understand that their problem is rooted in sin, which in the only solution is Christ. And we have all the solutions right here in this book. But sometimes it's hard for us to get, and had this conversation this week, get excited about local ministry. And we get more excited about global efforts. I want us to be just as excited about reaching people with the gospel here and through the organic opportunities we have here as we have about going to Honduras or wherever else. Sometimes we sort of romanticize getting out there beyond right here. Let's get pumped about right here. Regionally, I've been praying about us associating with the Greater Atlanta Baptist Network, which is an association of Southern Baptist churches which share a more, a more alignment doctrinally with our church. Most of these churches are Nine Marks Church, and they are focused on planting and equipping local churches. And I really am praying about changing our association to the Greater Atlanta Baptist Network. I want to continue to support um, through special emphasis and offerings, things like the Pregnancy Resource Center. And as you know, we have already begun to support Adam Webb, who is a pastor who preached here this summer. Uh, as he's planting a church called Redemption Baptist Fellowship uh, through the North American Mission Board. And uh, that's over in Johns Creek. And so again, a local church focus. How do we get the gospel out regionally? Well, we help get churches going. There's also something called the Great Commission Initiative that I want to re-engage with, which is something um, where we focus, trying to help churches do a better job of reaching the ethnos, the, the nations that are coming here. You do realize Gwinnett County is the most diverse county in the United States of America. We actually have some unreached people groups that have now moved here. That's astonishing. So how can a little church like us be involved in that? Well, that's something I want us to pray about. And if it's something that's on your heart that gets you excited, I want, I want to equip you. I want to think about how we can do that. Nationally, we are partnering with the North American Church Planting Foundation, which is a Southern Baptist organization with which we share doctrinal alignment. And we're going to be, we are partnering with them financially as they plant churches around the country. But specifically, we are supporting Kevin Sanders with Redeeming Grace Church in Boston. That will be our local church focus through the North American Church Planting Foundation. And of course, globally, we'll continue to support the IMB through our Southern Baptist Convention Cooperative Program. If you don't know what that is, I'll explain it to you later. But the International Mission Board is the largest mission-sending agency in the history of the world. And uh, I'm much more confident in the IMB now that they have some new leadership than I was before. So I'd like to see our giving to Southern Baptist missions increase, even through special offerings like Lottie Moon. And if you don't know what that is, you're not a Southern Baptist, all right? 
I'll explain it to you later. But being mission-driven as a church doesn't just stop with our wallets. I want us to be involved in all these things. So if we get a chance to go help Kevin, we're going to send a team to help Kevin. Or to go help Adam in Johns Creek, we're going to send a team to help Adam. But also with international missions. As we already mentioned to you last week, Honduras and being involved in the local churches there that are ministering to the different villages. Um, and Todd's not here this morning, but Todd has an amazing ministry. Todd Harrison has an amazing ministry called Better for Kids. And we've been talking with him about how our church can partner with a local church that's trying to reach a village either in Africa or the Middle East. And I want us to, I want us to support a missionary couple named Matt and Emily Tyler who are helping local churches get started in Southeast Asia with a focus on discipleship and evangelism is where his strengths are. And Matt and Emily, uh, Matt... Was a, child, was a child in my children's ministry when I was at First Baptist Bentonville, and now he's being sent out as a missionary to Southeast Asia. So I'd like for our church to learn more about them and get behind supporting them. I prayerfully want to consider reestablishing our relationship with the Liberian orphanage that we once had. And I pray, I pray that some will be called to go. That's a unique calling to be a missionary. Not everybody is called to be a missionary. Someone comes up to you and says, oh, we all should be selling all of our possessions and going to the ends of the earth. That's not true. It's a unique calling. But a calling I hope and pray that some will respond to here in this room. But above all, we must be praying. Luke 10, 2 says, Jesus said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. We have things over here that I don't think we even use. Okay, the IMB, the International Mission Board, sends us these little, these little slips over here. Well, I've got an example of one here. It simply has a prayer points for every day of the week, every day of the month, to be praying for different people groups or different missionaries. I want you using those. Okay, same thing, there's some other resources from the International Mission Board, commission stories and other things that help you focus some of your prayers. But, but obviously, I want you praying for the things we're involved in. And if you can't go out and share the gospel with Peter on Friday night, by all means, the least anyone can do in this room is to pray for him every night, every Friday night. Whether or not that's your cup of tea or not, I don't care. Pray. Prayer should be all of our cup of tea. Every one of us should be praying that the gospel go out in a variety of different ways in this church body. And I also want us to pray for sister churches in the area. Besides people groups, I'm going to start putting sister churches in, the, in our bulletin to be praying for. We may not be perfectly in alignment with every other sister church in this area. But we need to be praying for our sister churches. That the gospel will sound forth from these different churches. So I want to pray for the churches of our area. Oh, friends, Peter paints a portrait of the church that should push us into missions. We should see it as twofold. An act of loving obedience and an act of gracious privilege. Peter concludes the section we're looking at today with these words drawn from the prophet Hosea. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Wow. Those are amazing truths. So we're going to respond this morning by going to the table and concluding with one song. We have our Lord's Supper here this morning. This will be our response time. To come to the table and to, to believe these words. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You have been invited to come. Come to the table of our Lord. 
because you are his people now. But the Lord's table is only for the redeemed. If you're not a believer here this morning, if you've never placed your faith in Christ, I mean really put all of your hope for life into him alone and repented of your sin, this table is not for you. But I do invite you to come. I invite you to come and repent this morning. Repent of your sin. Turn to Christ. Seek him for forgiveness. Maybe do that while the believers are participating in the Lord's Supper this morning. So I'll remind parents in here as well that if your children are not believers, I ask you not to allow them to partake of the Lord's Supper either. It is an ordinance for the church. Just as baptism is an ordinance for the church, for believers born into the new covenant family of God, so too this table here is for the new covenant family. Let me pray and then we'll partake of the table. Father, we praise you and thank you that we are this beautiful portrait that Peter paints for us, this amazing collection of nations, of races, of backgrounds, being built into a spiritual house because we are, by virtue of our union to Jesus, our cornerstone, we are living stones. We've been made alive. His resurrection is our resurrection. Thank you, Father, for that truth. So, Lord, as we come now to the table, help us, Lord, to remember these truths. I don't know how many of us have thought of 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10 when we take the Lord's Supper. But let us think about that today. There was a day in the church when the church had, gotten, had wandered away into darkness, Father, when, when a person who called himself a priest would stand in between the people and the table. Father, I praise you that bold and brave men who gave their lives and blood were willing to take us back to the Bible. We are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. And because Christ, our high priest, has gone before us and rent the curtain in two, we can offer you spiritual sacrifices. And one of those spiritual sacrifices is to simply come this morning and remember you by partaking of these elements, the fruit of the vine, and of course the bread. So we pray that you bless this time now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.